it's always a little bit disconcerting when one has the privilege and the honor of being able to preach God's Word. And the reason I say that is because I recognize that it's an awesome responsibility. Pastors and leaders know that uh, we will one day stand before God and we will be held to a very high standard. And so we want to make sure that we preach and teach in such a way that, that honors him. That's accurate. And so I, I, I always have a little trepidation, regardless of how many times I've done it. I was talking to someone just before service uh, about the, having all the confidence in the world, it seems, uh, a few days ago, and then getting down to the day and then feeling a sense that I'm not in control. And I, and I was reminded that that's okay. That's okay, I'm just the spokesperson. I'm just the mouthpiece. And uh, let's pray. Indeed, God, we are just mouthpieces. We are just instruments. We're just tools for your namesake. We pray, God, that whatever is said from your word would ultimately be honoring of you that at the end of it Jesus Christ and Christ alone not the man but the message Jesus Christ is crucified will be lifted up I thank you for that privilege and that honor in Jesus name we pray Amen The challenge for us as we engage the Word of God is to move out of this place of perfunctory kind of operational kind of, yeah, I just need to check the box. To move beyond a place of coming to church to move beyond a place of going to small groups, to move beyond a place of just serving, to move beyond a place of just being a person checking the box. The challenge is to be a person that is truly a disciple. A disciple is one who has chosen to follow him. One who is committed to following him, to being like him. The challenge for us is to take this word of God and not only just read about it, but to let it become so integrated in us that we are disciples by virtue of default. We are people of the book. Regardless if we go to Thailand, or if we go to Israel or wherever we go, we're people of the book. The challenge for us is to be people not only of the book, but people who read the book and people that are saying to themselves, I hear and I obey the book. Because to hear and obey the book is to hear and obey God. And over and over and over and over and over again, as we read the narratives throughout the book, it seems to me that one of the biggest challenges that face 
the Israelites is to be a people obedient to the book, obedient to the word of God. As I was looking at the Ten Commandments and I, was start, I started going back looking at the Pentateuch and just, just the first five books of the Bible, and it kept, I, kept, I was amazed at how over and over and over again God seemed to be saying the same thing. I am your God. There is no other God besides me. There will never be another God besides me. Worship me alone. I am God. And at one point, they articulate to their leader, Moses, we got it. Yeah, you, you talk to him because he sounds very intimidating. So, so, yeah, we got it. We hear and we obey. And as soon as they say we hear and we obey, the very next thing that happens is Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God. And while he's taking his time with God and engaging God, they get a little impatient. And they're well, it's taking him for a long time to come back down that mountain. Maybe we ought to get our own God. And they convince the leadership that they should build their own God. And you know the story. They decided to make them a golden calf. And why would they do that? Because that is precisely what the people of the land, the Egyptian people would do. They had come out of bondage, come out of slavery. God had brought them through the Reed Sea or the Red Sea. God had brought them through. God had saved them. You see the redemptive process moving along. And all of a sudden, they are rejoicing, rejoicing that they are. They're rejoicing that they're no longer in bondage. And then as soon as as soon as their leader is gone and engaging God, what do they do? They start worshiping another God. They start acting just like they had never left bondage. They had never left Egypt. Hold on to that little piece because later on I'm going to come back to that because I believe that sometimes us, I'm fast forwarding real quick, but sometimes we live as though we are still in Egypt, metaphorically speaking. We live sometimes as though we are still under bondage. We live as as though we are still held captive. We'll talk about that. The children of Israel, because God is such a gracious God, he sees what they've done. And what does he do? He demonstrates what God Almighty does, and he does so faithfully. Because he is the covenant-keeping God. Because he has already committed himself to them and says, you are mine. In verse, in chapter 19, before we get to our part in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, chapter 19, verse 3, the Lord called him, that is Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will shall be my treasured possession. 
among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God had declared that this people, these Israelites, would become his treasured possession. And he had so committed himself by way of covenant that he said to them, in a sense, he basically said, look, I have, you, you, you're mine. I have invested in you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. You are mine. There is no reason to worship any other gods out there. There's no reason to involve yourself with any other gods out there. Why? Because I am your God. Moses picks up the Decalogue, picks up the clay tablets, and God fingers the commandments. And he comes back down the mountain. And as he comes back down the mountain, he sees that it's out of control. There was a great scene. I was going to show it, and I said, ah, it's kind of cheesy. As it was the old one way back with Cecil B. DeMille's with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Charlton Heston, that long beard standing up the mountain. He's got the, 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 the two clay tablets, and he throws them. I like that part where he throws them when he sees the calf down there. What are you guys doing? He throws the clay tablets down, and they blow up. The, the tablets blow up the, uh, the golden calf, and the people are like, ah. And, and, you, and what I do is I watch all the little characters because you don't see that when you're first time watching it. But now here, years later, I'm looking. I said, those people can't even act. It's, it's like you see this one person laying on this altar, this lady, and she's just kind of laying there like she's kind of giving over to lust or something. I'm going, what, what is this? This is kind of cheesy. <laughs> he had committed himself to them to the extent that he says, okay, let's try this again. And Moses goes back up the mountain at one point. He says, I will try it again. With these people, they are a stiff-necked people. They don't get it that their covenant God loves them and has given themselves to him. And, and so, so they, don't, they don't get that peace that he has given himself to them. And so he, he goes back up the mountain. He comes back. God reaffirms his commitment, his covenant with them. And now you look at what God is doing. You begin to put the pieces together in the Old Testament. I told you way, way back when I spoke before that God is working what we call this redemptive historical, uh, uh, this process of redemption. What we call this meta-narrative. This one story. There is only one story. God is taking folks from the very beginning, in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, and he's working through, and he's got a plan. And in that plan, he's got in his mind that he's going to save and recreate humankind. And all the process in between, from Genesis to Revelation, there's this process of recreating. There's the process of calling Moses and bringing him, calling Abraham and Moses, bringing them to a place of, of saying, okay, now here's my people, a chosen nation, 
a people that belongs to me. And those people will be a light to the rest of the nations. Those people will go out and represent me to all those nations that are idol worshipers. Those people will represent me, the only true God, because they are in this, this, this kind of culture that it has all these different gods. But the only true God will be known because my people who are my treasured possession will represent me. But what do they do? They drop the ball. And so God has to work a different way. And he begins to work it out through other processes. And we get a picture in the New Testament of, of, of things pointing to someone that would be perfect. God kind of gives them a glimpse, uh, just a glimpse of, of what it would look like when he talks about the, the first Passover. And that's recorded in the book where, where it's like putting the blood on the, on the uh, post, uh, doorpost and, and, and having this, this perfect lamb that, that had to be slaughtered. And so in the minds of those people, it's like only the blood, only the blood could cover. Where would that do, what would that do for us over 2,000 years later? We would get in our mind that only the blood, only the blood of Jesus Christ can cover. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can redeem because it was the blood through those rituals, through all of that stuff, the sprinkling of the blood that pictured this redemptive process that God was working. A gracious God who cares so much for his people. If I'm guilty, I, I, I think my guilt sometimes, personally speaking, is I forget. Because you can do this so many times where you began to, to kind of like just go through the motions. And I forget that we are talking about the God of all creation who has given himself for us, who has provided for us in so many ways. And we forget that he looked way down the line, way down the line, even from the very beginning, and he knew exactly what he needed to do. And every single one of us, he knew our story. He knew what we had to go through. And every place he had us covered because he had redemption in mind that he would save us. The problem as with the children of Israel, sometimes we forget. And it's easy for us to go back to Egypt. It's easy for us to go back to worshiping that, that we are comfortable with. And God is calling us out of that place of comfort, saying, I need you to trust me. In our text today, Verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep, who keep my commandments. 
I'm going to unpack that a little bit because there's a misnomer that so many have fallen into regarding that last piece about visiting the, the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And a lot of times we, we kind of hear things and we take that and we run with it. And some of us have gotten stuck there because we think that some kind of way that, that the things that are happening to us are things that have been passed down. And, and I have a different take on that. I, I, I believe it's not quite biblical. I, I don't believe it. We'll talk about that. What does the passage reveal about God? I think, I think when I look at this passage, I think the key thing in this passage for us, the key thing is that God desires this exclusive relationship with his people. It is the very same thing with us. In fact, if you take the children of Israel and you say, here's the children of Israel and here is the church. Okay, it's the same situation. In a sense, you could say that the children of Israel were, were, were you could talk about a marriage, a spousal relationship, as it were. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when you're in a situation where God says, you're my treasured possession among all, you're this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, God alone is the one who meets our needs. So I think this passage, first of all, talks about the fact that we are in exclusive relationship with God. What does it say about Christ? While it doesn't specifically talk to Christ, I believe that it, 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 it's, it's by way of default, there is this sense that Jesus Christ is affirmed through this. This is a point of salvation, a point of entry, because in a sense, when when God talks about I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you. I saved you. That is prefiguring. That is the same picture of Christ, who, what he does for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, everything that the Old Testament folks were doing, it was pointing to Christ. It was pointing to a time when Jesus Christ would come on the scene and save us. And so all that was done, all the worshiping, all the, 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 the <clears throat> burnt offerings and, and the, the various kinds of offerings that were get all of that stuff was pointing to Christ. Why? Because what God was doing was through the law, he was teaching them obedience. But there would come a time when God would say, guess what, folks? You can't do it. You can't pull it off. And so now what I'm going to do now is I'm going to send you someone. I'm going to send someone. In fact, myself, I'm going to come and show you what it looks like. And so God becomes the God man and Jesus Christ becomes that example for us who is tempted in every way and yet did not sin. That one becomes our example. That's the one that we emulate. When he says in 4 John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me except through the Father. That's precisely what he's getting at. Our salvation is in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is not in anything else other than Christ Jesus. No one. It's not Christ plus something else. I remember one time I was in a Bible study. I might have shared this once before. But I was in this Bible study at work. Uh, we do these studies every every other week. And uh, some years ago, I had an individual in the study whom I had to ask at one point to stop coming to the Bible study. Pastor, you're pretty mean. No, 
I, I wanted to make sure that, that he didn't mess us up. Because what he was doing was he was talking about Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he was talking about something mere Baba, some, other, some sort of Indian god or, or, or godhead. And he would always talk in terms of, yeah, Jesus plus mere Baba. And he said it a couple times too many, and I tried to gently correct him during the study. And finally, I just pulled him aside outside the study and said, look, we can't do Jesus and mere Baba. We have to do Jesus Christ alone crucified. That's it, brother. I love you, but I tell you what. Why don't you sit this one out and you and I can talk and work through this on the side. But I can't have you sitting in the study disrupting with, this, with this, this, this teaching that is not true. It's false teaching. And he graciously accepted it. I got a letter from him, an email from him about two years later where he was being let go by the company because he had been caught up in some sort of uh, issue where he was having pornography stuff sent to the company so he could store it up and they finally busted him when it went to the wrong address instead of his address at Lockheed and he ended up being fired. See, why do you say that, Pastor Ali? Because I believe that once you get into some weird kind of idolatry, some situations like that, it opens the door for all kinds of other stuff. Let me deal with this a little bit on this thing about idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. In fact, over in the same book, over in chapter 34, chapter 34, verse 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now, when God speaks of himself as being a jealous God, what, what, what does that bring to mind for you? God is a jealous God. Is it jealousy like we experience jealousy? No, not, not that kind of jealousy. When we talk about jealousy, it's a suspicious, uh, distrustful kind of jealousy, a human-centered kind of jealousy. When God speaks of himself as being jealous, it's because we, he is so committed to the exclusive nature of this relationship with his people that he says, you, look, you are, you are mine. And there's something of a righteous indignation. There's some, you belong to me. Therefore, you worship me, only me. I am the one, not those other gods you play with, but I am the one that brought you out of that place where you used to be in bondage. I am your God. Can I ask you a question? How many of us have our own small g gods, our own little idols? No, we're not bowing down to wooden figures and stone figures and all that kind of stuff like they were doing. But in the 21st century, do we have our own set of gods? Do we have our own own form of idolatry that sends the same message that basically says, God, you're not enough? You stand in line for uh, 24 hours to buy a phone. Something is wrong. I'm just saying. Where are your priorities? Would you stand in line to get a Bible? (laughs) 
there's something wrong. We always do this thing where we say, we used to have this men's accountability group, and we used to check in with each other. Uh, and we, we used to do what we called uh, uh, <clears throat> PMS. Men, PMS, check in. Power, money, and sex. And so those were the three areas that we would, we would question each other about. How are you doing with power? How are you doing with money? How are you doing with sex? I believe that if there are areas that we can struggle with in terms of idolatry, most of the time it will fall in those areas. Now, there are all kinds of idols, all kinds of things out there. Some of you are looking at me like, oh, no, don't go there, Pastor, please. There's all kinds of idols out there, I know. Doing a message like this is interesting because as I began to put it together, I had to search my own heart. And one of the frustrations for me in being able to get up here and speak to you about this is I discovered I have my own idols. And while I'm not bowing down to them and worshiping them, in a sense, there is some sort of connection and power that I've allowed them to have in my life. And when God brought it to my attention as I was working this message, I had to fall on my face and and, and admit to God, God, have mercy on me. Why? Because it's ever so subtle things that can come in and take control. And all of a sudden you find that what you've done is you've moved God out of the center place a little bit and you've chosen to have something else. Now, you're not calling it your God, but in a sense, because it gets your time and your energy and your efforts and you put all that stuff into it, what you're doing is it's your worship. And God is saying there shall be no worship other than me. Where do you put your time? What do you invest in most of the time? A job can become an idol. I want to get a promotion. That can become an idol. A position can become an idol. What do you put your time into all the time where you're locked into it? It can become an idol. What do you think about all the time? It can become an idol. I want my kids to be in the best school and, and I put all that. Yeah, that can become an idol. I'm not saying there's something wrong with it. I'm not saying I'm not making a judgment call there. I'm saying ask yourself, is that becoming an obsession? Anything where your heart has become obsessed with it becomes an idol because the scriptures teach that our hearts should be obsessed with God. We should be just enamored with God. God alone. Why? Because he is the one that requires all of our worship. Well, what's wrong with having a poppy pastor or, or something that I like doing? And I, and I, well, yeah, nothing's wrong with it. But when it becomes an obsession, sex can become an obsession where it becomes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, pastor, don't go there. We're married. It can become an obsession. Yeah. You can find yourself being controlled in that area. Is it an idol? Do the idol test. Does it take more of my time? And, and, and when I look at the time that I, I put with God and his word and prayer, how does it weigh on the scales? Food can become an idol. Ask yourself, am I, do I really get excited about food more excited than I get about God? Some of you are smiling, but I know people like that. 
They're serious about food. And you get in their way, and you might as well, you, you just smash their God. All I'm saying is there are areas in our lives that we have to take a look at because there are areas that easily we have given over. And God is saying to us, don't watch it. Be careful in this area because easily you can find yourself caught. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. So God is a jealous God, but he's not jealous the way we think of jealousy and stuff like that. He's jealous in the sense of there's a righteous indignation. There's like, you belong to me. If you look at, uh, I don't want to get into it now, but in in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, Deuteronomy, all those books, Isaiah, you see that same thing over and over again. Look it up for yourself. God is calling them out because of their idolatry. In some instances, he says, "You're, you're, you're worshiping gods that can't even speak. They can't do anything for you. What about my Raiders? What about my 49ers? Well, it could be an idol. Yeah, I'm in, in 49ers territory. Or look, let me tell you, if it becomes an obsession, it's an idol. Test yourself. Don't watch the game one time and just get the results later on and see if you're okay. <laughs> if you go into some sort of... where you're shaking... And you're trying to get to the dial on the TV and you're trying, something is wrong. That, that should tell you if you go into some sort of withdrawals and you're trying to, it shouldn't be that way. I was, when I was in the military, uh, I had this car, my very first car that I purchased myself. And it was a new car. And I used to go out every day just about every day, and I'd look at it. And I'd go back in the barracks. And at the end, I'd come back, I'd look at it again. It was just a Dodge Dart. <laughs> it was a Dodge Dart Demon. No, that was the name for it, Dodge Dart Demon. 6B225 cubic inch engine. Go figure. It had become something that, that, that I was obsessed, and I didn't realize I was obsessed with it. And I knew I was obsessed when, when, when even in those days when I was unsaved, when, when somebody brushed up beside it, and I was ready to go high order. Unsaved Ali Hassan high order is not nice. Just for somebody brushed up against it. An idol. I want to talk a little bit about this sin thing, about passing on sins, because I think that sometimes we we get this wrong on this piece, and I wanted to address this. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. First of all, who is visiting? Who is doing this? God. You ask yourself, who is, who is saying this? This is God. Okay. So, when it says visiting the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children to the 
third and fourth generation to those who hate me. That's precisely who he's talking about, those who hate me. Now, are there ramifications in terms of sins and families? Yes, there is. If you raise a child up in an environment that is sinful, that is idolatrous, guess what happens? You can actually pass stuff on because they pick up those habits watching their parents. If you are a parent and you are not demonstrating godly attitudes and spirits in your home, I'm going to tell you right now, I encourage you, I exhort you to knock it off and start living a Christ-like life in front of your children. Why? Because they will look at you, and you don't realize it, but they will do exactly what they see mom and dad doing. They will say the same words that they hear. You ever see a kid say something like, you, you, they, only say, you, they heard it in the household and you know that's where they got it from and they're out now in front of somebody, other company, and then they say something they heard mom and dad say and everybody's going, uh-oh. And they know that the kid is too young to figure that out, but all of a sudden it's like, okay, now there's only two places, school or the home. Guess where they usually say, yep, got it from home. So you have to be careful because the bottom line on this text is that God is saying that there is there's ramifications for this nation, that this this sin issue can be can continue on. Because if you set your heart to idolatry, it won't stop. It continues on. but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I take this verse in the context of the Old Testament under that covenant because under the covenant now we are, we are in a place of grace. And certainly, here's the other piece on this verse. God does not cause people to sin. So if you read this the wrong way, it almost sounds like, well, God is making them sin generations down. God is making them sin. No. That's not the way you read it. Individuals, God holds individuals responsible for their sin, and that's just the nature of it. Uh, in fact, general consequences of worshiping idols, uh, Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, each will die for their own sin. A child brought up in an idolatrous environment will become infected by that environment. They become practitioners of that environment. So Ezekiel eighteen twenty is another place that basically says, it, 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 no. Each is responsible for their own, but you can set a spirit in a house if you're not careful. I want to leave you with something now as we wind this up. This is your call to action, as it were. I want to challenge you with this. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell Pastor Scott. But I challenge you to discover, find out, go to God sincerely. I beseech you. I beg you. Go to God. And ask God to put his finger on the idols in your heart. The reason I say in your heart is because this idolatry thing comes down to the heart issue. Well, why do you say that, Pastor Ali? Remember the story about the young man, the rich man, that, the young ruler that, that uh, I think it's in Mar- uh, Luke. He uh, went to God and said, hey, I, I keep all the commandments. I do this, do this, do this. I, I, yeah, I, I, got all, I got it all. What else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Remember that story? And God says, Christ says, oh, okay, that's good. Sell everything you got and follow me. 
and you'll be perfect. Why did he do that? The young man was talking about the commandments. Why did he tell him to sell all that he had and follow me? When I, when I discovered this, I said, wow. Because his heart, it was a test. It was a test of his heart. Because it says that he went away disheartened. Where your treasures are, that's where your heart is. That's what you worship. And he was worshiping his stuff. And he realized he had a lot of stuff. And to sell all of his stuff and follow this man that doesn't even have a home is not working for him. That's why the idolatry thing is so key. That's why it's all throughout the scriptures because of the power that it has to draw our hearts into a place that we don't want our hearts to be, but it feels good to us at the time. Challenge you. Ask God to put his finger on those areas. Secondly, pray and ask the Lord to help you. Confess your sin of idolatry to him so that you can break the cycle. I'm not telling you something I'm not doing. I haven't done. I had to ask God to, as I was going to speak on this message, God, God, this is an area that you've shown me. So I've got to deal with it. Number three, renew your vows to God and tell him that he alone is worthy. And make him the Lord of your life. You see, the whole question in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, all throughout Deuteronomy, is God is simply saying, I want to be Lord. That's who I am. I want to be all there is. I'm Yahweh. I am your God. And to us in the 21st century, it's very easy when we look at the landscape. There's so many gods out there. And it's so easy to get pulled into worship of one of those gods, even when it sounds like or feels like Jesus God, and it's not Jesus God. And God is saying to us, be careful. Watch where your heart, what pulls your heart, what draws your heart. If it's not me, if the affection isn't for me, and it's something competing, if, if I'm, you're in this competing thing where something else is competing for first place or center, then, then you're in an idol, idolatrous situation. One more scripture and I'll, I'll wrap it up. And we know in 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. The test is always between the false God and the real God, true God. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Christ Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves free from idols. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before your children. And God, your grace is so incredible that even in the midst of our idolatrous generation, God, you speak your grace and mercy into our lives. And we are so thankful. And so I pray as we examine our hearts, God, that you again will demonstrate grace and mercy and draw us back into that treasured possession place, the rightful place where we should be as your own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.